Auguste Escoffier. Saying that name brings a certain romance to the air, doesn't it? A sense of opulence, elegance, sheer royalty. He was called the Chef of Kings and the King of Chefs. He is widely considered, and probably is, the most important and revered chef in all of history. Every time we hear the name Escoffier, we are told tales like the one you're listening to right now. A stunningly beautiful dining room with string music playing in one of history's great hotels. A crowd of impeccably dressed royals sitting and giggling drunk while they indulge in flaming ice cream and sorbets, slicing and devouring some of the world's most rare ingredients cooked for them by a genius. We're told of the mustachioed chef standing in his gleaming kitchen watching over a team of cooks and chefs as they silently and with flourish poured bird's nest soup from giant silver terrines or sliced lobes of foie gras as large as soccer balls, whispering in awe as the great man floated by them and out into the dining room to receive the applause and ovation that awaited him. But fuck that. If that's what you think of when you think of Escoffier, if this is what's been jammed down your throat by your professors in your culinary schools, or by your boring foodie friends and shitty Wikipedia articles, then you're wrong. You're really, really wrong. Escoffier wasn't proper, he wasn't royal, and he sure as shit didn't care about ovation. He was a rock star, a badass. He was literally insane in the best sense of the word. So moving forward, don't think about this. Think about this. Welcome to Let's Talk About Chef. I'm your host, Brian Clark, and this week we're going to dive into the life and legacy of Auguste Escoffier. At the age of 12, despite showing promise as an artist, Escoffier's father, a blacksmith by trade, pulled him out of school and took him to his uncle's restaurant, Le Restaurant Francais, in Nice, to begin working as a cook's apprentice. The thing you have to understand is that at the time, being a cook was seen as degrading. It was the bluest of the blue collar, and kitchens back then were nothing like the gleaming steel and impeccably clean food palaces we have today. Kitchens were dark, were dirty hot in dangerous places, with open fires, coals burning constantly, and obviously no ventilation other than an open window if you were lucky. That, and cooks themselves, weren't really the type of people you would want to hang out around. They would drink wine, not water, to stay hydrated, shout and scream constantly, and generally treat apprentices like garbage. And speaking of, there was no garbage pickup twice a week either. Not really the type of place that a 12-year-old boy would feel comfortable in. He started out as a kitchen boy, basically taking out garbage, cutting onions, and sweeping, all while getting treated like shit by his uncle. He would yell at him, throw things, hit him if he screwed up, and also didn't help that he was short. So short that he couldn't even open oven doors without jumping in the air and using his weight to swing them open. He worked his way up to sauce maker, and at some point realized that if he wore boots with heels on them, he could be just tall enough to reach everything and stop swinging through the narrow kitchen on an oven door handle. He stuck around his uncle's kitchen, working his way up the ranks, until at the age of 19, he left and became an apprenticed roast cook at a nearby hotel called the Hotel Bellevue. 
I should probably stop here and explain to you that being an apprenticed roast cook literally meant learning how to roast meat with the hopes that one day when the original roast cook quit, got fired, or died, you would replace him. A roast cook's job was literally that, to roast meat. And they would spend all day, every day, roasting meat until the dinner hour when a bell would be rung and the hotel guests would arrive for dinner and the meal that you'd been preparing all day would be served. No menus, no inventing, no creating anything. Cooking was a trade, and you did it, and then you went home. Soon after Escoffier started at the hotel, a guest in the restaurant was so impressed that they invited him to move to Paris and be a sous chef at the already legendary restaurant Le Petit Moulin Rouge. So he packed up and moved to Paris to try and take on the city. He was only in Paris for three months when he got drafted to join the French army, and so he had to leave to become an army cook. It was during this brief time in the military that he became obsessed with the idea of preserving food, trying to figure out how to can things like tomatoes or asparagus so that they could make it to the front lines without spoiling and the troops could eat them. Next time you're making pasta and you open your cupboard door, take a look at all the canned sauces you have. You can thank Escoffier for that. He came up with it when he was 20. After his brief stint in the military, he returned back to Le Petit Moulin Rouge and very quickly became the head chef. And that's where he started to become the man that we know him to be today, inventing recipes, sauces, techniques. Who knows what would have happened if he had stayed at the restaurant? But the Franco-Prussian War broke out in 1870 when he was only 25 and he had to leave to go cook in the army again. He served for seven years before returning to Paris. Seven years of cooking military food for military men. No fancy ingredients, no art, just sustenance. The war ended and Escoffier moved back to Paris. But he had had enough working for other people. His time in the military had awoken him to a few major flaws in kitchens. What if he ran his kitchen like a general runs a battalion? What if instead of a group of drunk, unorganized cooks all trying to shout over one another, he broke them up? The artillery would be responsible for making fish. The gunners would be responsible for making sauces. The infantry would be responsible for garnishing and cold salads. And the general, himself, would be there to command the troops into the battle of service. Escoffier's kitchen brigade was born, and if you have spent any time in a kitchen over the last 150 years, you know damn well that it hasn't left. By the time 1878 rolled around, Escoffier had worked in several of the best restaurants in Paris, but that was the year he finally opened his own restaurant in Cannes called the Golden Pheasant, and he went all in on his new way of running a kitchen. And it worked. The kitchen brigade was efficient, it meant smoother service, better quality of food, and Escoffier had, without probably knowing it at the time, changed restaurant dining forever. In 1880, he was playing pool against a wealthy book publisher who had bet his beautiful daughter's hand in marriage that he could beat him. He didn't, and so Escoffier and Dauphine Dauphine married shortly afterwards. You can go ahead and take a moment to check your textbooks. That shit is not in there. I should probably explain to you why running a massive hotel's kitchen was so important. Nowadays, chefs dream of owning this tiny hole-in-the-wall bistro in L.A. or New York that's packed every night and the guests cram into the dark corners of your dimly lit empire to eat whatever your hearts desire. But back then, hotels were the only place to be taken seriously. If you wanted to eat well and you weren't a royal, you took one of the new trains that connected Europe to one of the massive and opulent new hotels where at 7 o'clock every night you were fed like you were royalty. And Escoffier excelled in this environment. He was inventing dishes on a daily basis, and I don't mean like he would come up with a new way to present a lamb chop. I literally mean he would invent a new way to cook one. 
Whether it be braising it in duck fat, cooking it for 14 hours in butter, it didn't matter. All that mattered was the experience that the guest had, and it wasn't long before the big time came knocking on his door. The hotelier, Caesar Ritz. Yeah, that's right, you've heard the name before. Or at least you've heard that terrible 80s song. In 1889, Ritz wanted Escoffier to join him in moving to London, England, to take over and save from bankruptcy the Savoy Hotel. He agreed despite the fact that he nor his wife could speak English, and in fact never learned how, because he thought he would lose his elegance. It's almost impossible to explain how much of a big deal Escoffier coming to the Savoy in England was, but I'm going to try. It would be like if Tom Cruise unzipped his skin and three small midgets popped out. It would be like if Donald Trump stripped off all of his clothes and then danced on the White House roof to the theme song from Dirty Dancing. It was fucking huge. England's food sucked. London, England sucked. Everything about England's food and culture sucked. And now you had literally the most famous chef in all of history showing up in a country that he openly and often would insult in the press, taking over a kitchen in the heart of London. Headlines around the world, and I mean the world, all read that Escoffier was moving to England, and the hype for what was to come was at a fever pitch. Escoffier at the Savoy was, and I don't mean to sound lame, the literal equivalent of the Beatles coming to America. It changed everything. He walked into the kitchen on his first day and instantly demanded that all chefs wear suits to work. Changed into pristine chef whites when they got there and changed back into suits when they left. He was going to make this ragtag bunch of dish jockeys into the most respected and talented group of cooks in the world. And it started with them respecting themselves as gentlemen. He took out all of the wine that they would drink to stay hydrated and replaced it with his non-alcoholic barley-based drink so that they could be sober and precise. He also had no yelling, no swearing, and no attitude. If you wanted to work in his kitchen, you would talk at a normal level because when the chef was calling out orders, he barely spoke above a whisper. He sent them to college on their days off so they could be educated. He also set up retirement homes for older chefs so that they could have affordable housing when they couldn't cook anymore. He brought respectability to the profession, and he wasn't done there. It would probably take me about three podcasts to take you through everything that Escoffier invented during his time at the Savoy, so I'm just going to say that the aristocracy of England was not prepared for what the team of Ritz and Escoffier did at that hotel. Every single day, the world's greatest ingredients would arrive on carts as far as you could see down the road at his kitchen door. The best seafood, bread, meat, game, and produce. Escoffier had to create new menus every single day. The demand for his creativity was so high that it wasn't uncommon for him to invent 30 dishes over a weekend, most of which are considered to be French classics today. He would write out a banquet menu like Quincy Jones wrote a soundtrack, just sit at a table, pen and a blank sheet of paper, and start to write out dishes that had never been done before. Things like crystallized roses, more sauce, flaming meringue. He just kept inventing things, drawing upon his years of creativity, and then after it was done, he and his team would just figure out how to make it all before dinner that evening. Every time a royal, a rich businessman, or a famous opera singer would show up to the hotel restaurant, he and his team would whip out multi-course dinners paired with the most expensive wine you could find, and thanks to his brigade system, it came out fast and precise. At the end of the day, all of the food would be gone, the kitchen would be cleaned, and in a few short hours, the kitchen door would have a lineup of carts going down the street, dropping off thousands of pounds of more food. The Savoy dismantled British aristocracy. Here you had the best chef in the world 
feeding everyone in the same room. Most great chefs of the time dreamed of working for a king or a queen, living in a castle, feeding them and their guests every day. Could you imagine what it must have been like to be the King of England chef, hearing rumors and reading articles about this French man who was taking food to places where people didn't think was possible? So, on your day off from the castle, you walk into the Savoy and see what the new young blood was doing, and you leave terrified. The only example I can think of what it must have been like is when Eric Clapton walked into a club in 1960s London and saw a 24-year-old Jimi Hendrix playing a cover of his version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 12 hours after he heard it being played in Abbey Road Studios. The album hadn't even been released yet. Clapton stood in a room with the Beatles, the Stones, and other countless British rock stars, and they all stared at what was happening before them, terrified. Clapton has said that he walked out of that club and seriously considered quitting music forever. What was happening on that stage was too modern, too intense, too threatening, and there was no way he could keep up with Hendrix. It must have been horrible. Despite the pressure, Escoffier didn't worry about being competitive with some of the French masters that were cooking for royalty. He didn't care because he was setting the bar so high every single day that he didn't have time to think about it. His relationship with his wife and children suffered, eventually with her leaving him and moving back to Monaco, but still he pressed on. He had a mission, even if he didn't know what that mission was. Hey, it's Brian. I wanted to take a second to talk to you about Koval Distillery. Established in 2008, Koval produces organic whiskey, liqueurs, and specialty spirits in Chicago's first distillery since the mid-1800s. Koval embraces the grain-to-bottle mentality, and each step of the spirit-making process is thoughtfully monitored, beginning with using local farmers to grow the grains. Koval has grown to be one of America's leading small-batch independent spirit manufacturers. You can find Koval's amazing whiskey wherever fine spirits are sold, and be sure to visit them at kovaldistillery.com. And now, back to the show. It was shortly after this that headlines around the globe ran a story that said the Savoy had kicked out Ritz and Escoffier. They'd been caught accepting bribes from suppliers, accepting bribes from purveyors. You know, and Escoffier was basically lining his pockets with cash from people that wanted him to use their products in his kitchen because of who he was. And despite all this, they both pled guilty, in court, had to pay a fine, and they moved on. But the legend that they had created for themselves at the Savoy meant that investors were literally trying to claw over one another to get at them and build something with them. So the same year that they were forced out of the Savoy in disgrace, Ritz and Escoffier opened the first Paris Ritz Hotel, followed shortly after by a triumphant return to London when they opened the Ritz Carlton in 1899. Now the Carlton, if anything was a massive fuck you to the owners of the Savoy. It had electricity in every room, bathrooms in every room, and for Escoffier, 60 of the most talented and hardworking chefs worked every day in its massive kitchen. Of course there were culinary dishes that blew people's minds, and of course there were amazing advancements in cleanliness standards and the science behind food preparation done in its doors, but the most important thing that was invented in the Carlton was the menu. That's right, a menu. 
the ability for anyone to walk into the restaurant at any time, sit down, be handed a piece of paper with writing on it, and order whatever they wanted off of it. A short time later, your meal would be served in an efficient, warm, and wonderful way. This had never been done before, ever, and Escoffier called it a la carte dining. It turned the restaurant world upside down. The amount of preparation, planning, and execution to pull off this ordering from a menu was unheard of, and we haven't gone back. It was punk. He destroyed it. He left people quaking in their boots. With his brigade system at the kitchen in the Carlton, he could turn out 500 plates a night, every night, for years. And the most impressive thing about this style of eating? You had kings sitting at a table next to businessmen with their wives, sitting next to a table of a young married couple, and on and on and on. He literally made the restaurant what it is today, a place where all walks of life can sit and enjoy a meal. In 1902, he published his first cookbook, Le Guide Culinaire. Now, if you have been to culinary school or you know someone who has, they have this book. It had 5,000 recipes in it and is still considered to be one of the most important cookbooks of all time. And I want to try and give you an example to try and explain how massive 5,000 original recipes is. How many ways do you know how to cook an egg? You've got scrambled, fried, poached, boiled, and if you have some technique, you can hopefully make a version of an omelet. That's five. And there are dozens of ways, as a cook, you can make those five methods of cooking an egg interesting, right? Add some onion, some cheese. The possibilities are endless with those five distinct ways of cooking something as simple as an egg. But Escoffier didn't have five ways to cook an egg. He didn't have 50 ways to cook an egg. He had 600 600 different ways to cook an egg. The next years of Escoffier's life were spent opening hotels all over the world, including Ritz-Carlton's in New York, Philadelphia, Rome, and on and on. They turned the Ritz-Carlton brand into the most successful and elegant hotel chain in the history of the world. They also opened restaurants on board luxury cruise liners where the kitchens would churn out carbon copies of the food served on the mainland. The creativity and design it took to make sure, for example, that lobsters stayed alive on board an ocean liner with no refrigeration is incredible. This had never been done before, and you can probably guess which famous ship had Escoffier's staff on board when it tragically sunk. The Titanic. The last multi-course meal many of those passengers in first class enjoyed on the final night the Titanic sailed was full of Escoffier classics. You had oysters a la russe, cream of barley soup, poached salmon with mousseline sauce, filet mignon with chicken lyonnaise and vegetable marrow, lamb with mint sauce, glazed roast duckling and roasted sirloin of beef, a sorbet to cleanse the palate, asparagus salad with champagne saffron vinaigrette, foie gras pâté with celery, Waldorf pudding, peaches and chartreuse jelly, chocolate painted eclairs, French vanilla ice cream, and then finally assorted fresh fruits and cheeses. All of this on a boat in the middle of the ocean, and the menu changed every day. Escoffier stayed on running the kitchen of the Carlton in London for 20 years. When he retired in 1920, he'd been working in professional kitchens for 65 years, a record that still to this day has never been matched and probably never will. He moved back to Monaco to be with his estranged wife, Dauphine, and while he was retired, he published more books, including a memoir. 
1935, his wife died, and just a few days after, the great chef and serial genius also passed away, leaving behind a life and legacy that will never, ever be matched. So the next time you hear the name August Escoffier, what are you going to hear? This episode of Let's Talk About Chef was written by me, Brian Clark. It was engineered by Tim McDonald. Our theme song is Cone of Light by the Almighty Defenders. If you want to reach out to us for any reason at all, you can email us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes about some of the greatest culinary minds of all time. Our next episode is going to be about British rock star psychopath Marco Pierre White. I'm your host, Brian Clark. Thanks for listening.